as Mike said, going to continue with church history today. So um, last time we did history, we were looking at Islam uh, and the sort of the 600, 700s AD. Today we're going to move on to the Byzantine Empire and take a look especially at the Eastern Orthodox Church and what they do and believe. Um, so uh, really since the time of the Emperor Constantine, uh, the seat of political power in Europe had shifted from Rome over to Constantinople, he named it after himself. Uh, and the early Middle Ages, which I'm going to say approximately 700 to 1000 AD, uh, were the peak of what we call the Byzantine Empire uh, and of the Eastern Church. Uh, we call them the Byzantine Empire. They actually didn't call themselves the Byzantine Empire. They called themselves the Roman Empire. Uh, they saw themselves as the continuation of the ancient Roman Empire uh, and in fact thought that they had reached new heights, especially because they had embraced Christianity. They thought they were an enlightened Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, they were often stronger uh, in some ways, uh, but not always. Uh, this time period, 700 to 1,000, was full of wars for them and all sides. Uh, they fought with the Islamic Arabs to the south and to the east. Uh, they fought various pagan tribes from the north, uh, and they even fought against Rome and the, the remnants of the Western Church uh, from time to time, unfortunately. Uh, that was to the west, of course. Uh, some of the emperors were great leaders um, who expanded the borders of the Byzantine Empire uh, with great success in war, and others were such poor leaders that the empire shrunk down to the point where it was almost destroyed multiple times. Uh, in fact, under the reign of the Empress Irene in the early 800s, uh, they saw so many defeats on the battlefield that they were almost destroyed. Um, it, it was one of those pagan tribes, as we call them, from the north that, that nearly did them in. Um, the only thing that saved them was the death of their ruler. Uh, his name was Crum, uh, and he died uh, in AD 814. And his son took his place and wasn't so interested in war or wiping out the Roman Empire. So he made peace with them, and that staved off their utter desolation. Uh, then throughout the rest of the 800s and 900s, they sort of flourished once again, uh, and even saw new kingdoms join the empire. Uh, the kingdom of Armenia, which we've talked about a long time ago, was actually the first kingdom to officially adopt Christianity as its religion. Uh, and then Russia, which was a large kingdom, uh, joined the Byzantine Empire uh, in that time period and joined with the church, uh, the orthodoxy there. So today I want to focus on the Eastern Church, uh, which really hasn't changed much from this time period to today. Uh, I think as Protestants, we're going to find some interesting differences between uh, what they do and what they teach and what we do uh, and teach. Uh, so we'll start by looking at their typical church service. Um, for starters, we're all sitting here in pews. Typically, Eastern Orthodox churches don't have pews or any seating, really. Um, that's changed in more recent times, maybe the last century or so. Uh, they're starting to do that. But throughout most of church history, no pews, no seating. 
except sometimes around the edge of the building, they would have some benches for the sake of the elderly or those who were sick and, and absolutely needed somewhere to sit. Um, they generally didn't have a pulpit uh, and no musical instruments. Um, they have no three-dimensional uh, items of decoration, such as statues or a cross up here on the wall. Um, but instead, they have their walls literally covered with flat images, paintings, uh, low-relief carvings, that kind of thing that they call icons. Um, generally, these are pictures of Jesus or Mary, different saints, apostles, even angels, other Bible characters, um, but covering their walls all over the place. Um, we're going to look at a controversy that comes with this, these icons here in just a minute. Uh, the reason for all these flat images and no three-dimensional carvings is that the Eastern Church believes that three-dimensional images are graven. If you think of the King James uh, version of the Ten Commandments, no graven image is the second commandment. So therefore, having a three-dimensional statue or a cross is breaking the second commandment. Uh, the reason they cover their walls with so many of these icons of saints uh, is to convey the idea that they are surrounded by these past believers, these saints, the angels, and, and they're all joining together in worship, in the worship that is ongoing constantly in heaven. Um, it also, to them, uh, is a way that they connect with these saints or Mary in order to approach God, because uh, we've talked about this, but they have the the same sort of hierarchy understanding of being able to approach God, where they don't think that we as commoners can necessarily come straight to the throne, but we need to know somebody who is sympathetic to our cause, who also has God's ear, such as Mary, his mother, or uh, an apostle, or a, a famous saint. Um, and so that unfortunately, is also one of the reasons for having the, the pictures of the saints and Mary around on the walls. Uh, the interior of their church is typically divided into two parts. Uh, through a wall, it would be maybe approximately here. I say a wall. Um, usually there's a step or a couple of steps up uh, and then a screen, not truly a wall, called the icon screen. Like all the other walls, it is covered in icons. Uh, the icon screen usually has three doors in it. Um, in the, the center, there's a pair of double doors and then single doors to either side of it. Uh, and those doors represent the Trinity. Uh, the middle door, being a double door, uh, has two images on it. On the left side is generally the image of the Virgin Mary. And the right side of the door has Jesus. Uh, the idea behind the icon screen, uh, which is always uh, on the east end of the building, which this room wouldn't really work for that. I think we're north-south here. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that the area behind the screen is uh, what they call the altar. We might think of it as like a sanctuary or uh, compared to the Jewish temple, maybe the holy place. It's this, this separate area that is meant to represent heaven. Um, typically, only the clergy are allowed into this, the altar area. 
Um, within the altar portion of the room, there's usually a, a small square table with a covering on it called the Holy Table. Um, it typically has decorations, uh, a crucifix, which is a three-dimensional cross. <laughs> but to distinguish it from the crucifix and the cross, a crucifix is just a cross, whereas the cross in Catholic typically has Jesus hanging on it. Can't have a, a human image. That, that's not acceptable. Yes? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So, typically a little crucifix on the table, a couple of candles, and a copy of the Gospels. Not the whole New Testament, not the whole scripture, just the Gospels on this table. Uh, and under the table, they usually store a few relics of some of their favorite saints. Um, much more a Catholic practice, but even the Eastern Church likes relics. Um, for their services, um, usually the person who's up preaching, teaching, leading music, what have you, stands on that step in front of the icon wall. Um, as I mentioned, they don't have a pulpit, but they usually have lecterns, which are, you know, little portable things. They move them where they need to, rather than a central, you know, large, solid thing. Because uh, they need notes, too. They need a place to, to put their notes. Uh, or their Bible, if they're reading from it, or what have you. Um, as I mentioned, there are no pews, so the congregation stands for the entire service. Should we practice? <laughs> We're going to later. Later, okay. Um, when they observe communion, uh, the church members typically take the bread and the wine together on a spoon. You have a spoon with some wine in it. The bread is sitting in there soaked in the, the wine. Um, the bread is typically leavened bread, um, not, not flat bread or crackers. And the wine is usually real wine that's been mixed with hot water. Um, in some churches, in fact, the church members are actually expected to provide their own bread and wine for communion rather than the church providing those for them. Uh, when they do have bread, which typically they have like a loaf that they're tearing pieces off and setting it, when they finish communion, any leftover bread gets distributed to everybody, not, not as communion, but as they call it, the, the besides the gift. It's this extra, here's some food for you guys kind of a thing. I don't know how much is usually left over. Maybe just another communion-sized bite or not but they get the leftover bread. Um, I think a typical church service there would probably feel very chaotic to us. Uh, and the reason for that, and, and part of it comes from not having pews, is that not all attendees do the same thing at the same time. So, while somebody may be up here talking, not everybody is standing here listening. Some people would be over against the wall, praying, singing in front of their favorite icon. Others might be at the back doing their own worship type of thing. Um, there's usually somebody wandering around, somebody, a clergyman, uh, burning incense and lighting candles in front of the different icons and things like that. So it's not all an organized event at their typical services. Um, when they do sing, 
together. Uh, it's typically a two-part responsive type, uh, usually of a chanting sort of thing. I think Gregorian chanting, they usually have somebody maybe do a verse and then the congregation responds with a verse and then another verse. So that, that's what I mean by responsive, not so much like echoing or that type of thing. Um, because their service is so simple, uh, an Eastern Orthodox service today looks very similar to a Byzantine era service. There really isn't anything that's changed uh, in the types of things I've just described for you. Um, they do have musicians, hymn writers, I should say musicians, not people playing instruments, but people composing uh, new songs and things. Uh, their most celebrated hymn writer, uh, of the entire Eastern Orthodox Church lived back in this Byzantine era. His name was Cosmas the Melodist, uh, and he died in AD 760. So if you're looking for a name for your kids someday, Cosmas. The Mel Cosmas Melodist. Yes. It would, yeah. You can pick whatever you want today. <laughs> All right, so I've already talked a little bit about icons, actually a lot about icons. Um, and for the Eastern Church, icons were a very big deal. Uh, they were so big that they led to one of the biggest controversies that the Eastern Church has ever faced. Uh, we call it the iconoclastic controversy. Uh, iconoclastic means icon hater, basically. Um, and it nearly shattered the Eastern Church. Um, yeah, so to clarify, I've already said this, but icons are primarily two-dimensional representations, paintings, low-embossed carvings, that type of thing, of Jesus, Mary, angels, saints. Um, they're not fully three-dimensional if they have any kind of third dimension to them. They're just a, you know, flat on the back type of thing. Um, Christ is the central focus of these icons. Even if they aren't pictures of him, the idea behind them is that uh, for example, an icon of a saint is a saint because he's been saved. His, his saintliness, which means holiness, is Christ's holiness in him. So even with saints or Mary, it's because of Christ. Um, and so as a result, they, they don't see it as a problem to worship in front of an icon that isn't specifically a picture of Christ because they they see Christ in that icon. Um, so they will even bow down, pray, things like that in front of icons of, of saints or apostles or Mary um, with the idea that they're directing their worship to Christ. Uh, in fact, by the 8th century, so the 700s, the, the use of icons was pretty central to all worship. They, they all went to the walls to do their worship. Uh, which leads us to the controversy. So uh, the emperor Leo the Asarian, uh, who reigned over the Byzantine Empire from AD 717 to 741, uh, decided uh, he was a, a religious man, a very zealous man, uh, and he believed that what, using icons for worship was idolatry, that it was a sin. And it was going to be his legacy to eradicate that sin from the church. And as emperor, he had a lot of ability to attempt to do that. Uh, in fact, Leo saw himself both as the emperor and also as a priest in the church. He believed that that was part of his function as emperor. 
and that God had raised him to his position as emperor in order to cleanse the church from this sin that had become so prevalent. Uh, Leo was popular politically, and so his army supported him in his efforts to uh, remove icons from the church. However, most of the church clergy and the common people didn't agree with him. They resisted him. Uh, And so the war against icons began in roughly AD 726, uh, and it started with the removal of a large icon of Christ on the gate of the palace in Constantinople. Uh, Leo sent his soldiers to pull the icon down, which they did. Uh, The crowd of people watching were enraged, and a group of women attacked the soldiers and killed the officer in charge. I don't know what they were using for weapons, but it did. Uh, Of course, can't kill an officer in charge. That's a problem. So Leo ordered all of those women to be executed, which they were. Uh, That just escalated things, and um, before we knew it, the entire empire was rioting because of the uh, execution of these women and these large public icons that were being pulled down. Um, The most uh, notable, I'm going to mention, because it's going to come up much later in history, but uh, I said all over the Roman Empire, uh, this rioting, this uprising is happening, The city of Venice, as an entire city, revolted and left the empire, becoming uh, an independent nation state. Uh, And that's important because the city of Venice is actually going to play a very critical role in the final downfall of the Byzantine Empire much later, near the end of the Middle Ages. So this controversy split Venice off, and they're going to be the downfall for them. Uh, True to the the whole East-West schism that we've seen between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, the Pope in Rome supported the the revolutionaries against the emperor. Uh, Of course, the Pope saw himself as a political figure and opponent of the emperor. Um, So even though he's agreeing with much of the church, it was to go against the, the government church, the organized church there. Uh, In AD 730, the Emperor Leo issued a famous edict against icons, declaring that all icons must be destroyed, and anyone who is found harboring icons was subject to punishment. Uh, Not necessarily death, but imprisonment, fines, that type of thing, typically. Uh, The result, of course, was the destruction of many icons, uh, but also uh, a lot of the clergy migrated out of the Byzantine Empire over to the Western church's realm, if you will, into that area. Uh, And as they did, they smuggled a lot of their favorite icons with them. Uh, In AD 741, Emperor Leo died and his son uh, became the emperor. His name was Emperor Constantine V. Uh, and his son continued the war against icons uh, with really even more zeal than his father, if possible, uh, except maybe a less controlled and more criminal. Uh, Under his authority, a lot more monks were driven away or tortured or even killed. So while his father had maybe favored imprisonment as punishment, he was ready to just off people for their, their use of icons. 
the most famous martyr under Emperor Constantine V uh, was Stephen of St. Auxentius, which was a small monastery in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Stephen was a very popular supporter of the use of icons, uh, and so he was first arrested and exiled to a small island, um, but that didn't stop him, so he was then moved to prison in Constantinople. However, the prison was already full of other fellow icon users, and so they formed a prison church and <laughs> continued to worship in that way. Uh, this outraged the Emperor Constantine V, and so he ordered the public execution of Stephen. Uh, they did this by marching him through the streets of Constantinople and ordering the people to stone him or beat him. Uh, eventually, somebody landed a very heavy blow with a club to his head, which split his head open and, and killed him. Uh, he was declared a martyr. Uh, they called him Stephen the New Martyr, compared to Stephen the uh, Deacon from Acts. Declared a martyr, of course, by the people that liked icons. The emperor did not declare him a martyr. Uh, in AD 754, Emperor Constantine V called for a church council to officially address the icon issue. Something about being named Emperor Constantine makes you think you can call church councils, I guess. Uh, he called it an ecumenical council, which means the whole church, universal, was invited except he didn't actually invite the whole universal church. He only invited churches that he knew would support his idea. He did not invite the major churches of Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, or Rome. So out of the five original major church areas, only his was represented. Not really an ecumenical church, but he called it that. Uh, they, of course, ruled in favor of his, uh, his opinions there, deciding that icon use was definitely a sin. Um, but uh, seeing as it was just that church, by and large, the Eastern Orthodox Church today does not recognize that council as truly being an ecumenical council, uh, and their ruling is not binding on anyone. Uh, the war against icons eventually died down after the death of Constantine V, or pretty quickly after his death. His son, Leo IV, these guys aren't very creative with their names, they should have gone with Cosmos, uh, was very young uh, and uh, didn't rule for very, young, very long. He was probably in his, in his early 20s, uh, and he appears to have only ruled for five years. I'm not sure if he died, I assume he did. Um, to have such a short rule, but after five years, his wife, the Empress Irene, became the ruler. Uh, we talked about her already as a terrible leader because of uh, military defeats. Uh, she became the ruler because their son, Constantine VI, <coughs> was just a little child. I mean, she'd only been married to this guy five years. That's not long enough to have a kid able to take the throne. Irene loved icons and loved power. She was more than happy to be the empress and do things. Uh, so she quickly reversed the proclamations of the previous emperors. She also called an ecumenical council. This one truly was ecumenical. She invited people from all the churches. In fact, even Rome sent a couple delegates to represent the pope. Uh, they met in Nicaea, which made this the second ecumenical council of Nicaea, since the church had already had one at that location. Uh, this took place in 787. Um, this would be the seventh and final truly ecumenical council that included all of the churches of East and West. 
uh, in church history. Uh, the council at this point with all of those people represented ruled in favor of icon use, um, but that outcome didn't last very long. Uh, as I mentioned, Irene was not a good military leader and the Byzantine army had loved her predecessors, so the army revolted against her and deposed of her and her son uh, in AD 802. And the next six emperors after her would all be anti-icon. So very short little victory there for the icons. Um, the majority of the church, however, and the common people continued to resist those emperors and remained faithful to the idea of using icons in their worship services, uh, despite persecution. It wasn't until the reign of the Empress Theodora in AD 842, one of the most famous rulers of the Byzantine Empire, uh, again, like Irene ruling in place of her child who was too young to take the throne, uh, that icon use was again supported, if you will, by the government. Uh, Theodora summoned another church council, this one not ecumenical, not attempting to be ecumenical, uh, just consisting of some of the Eastern churches, uh, and this council affirmed the decision of the second ecumenical council of Nicaea and said, yes, icons are okay. Uh, and from that point on, that was, that was the end of the iconoclastic controversy. From then on, the use of icons would remain central to the worship practices of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So I want to consider this idea of using icons for worship and ask a few questions. Um, first of all, do icons violate the second commandment? Well, just, just the existence of them. Is it a graven image if you have a picture of Jesus on your wall? Well, not a graven image. Is it, is it an idol is what I'm asking? No. So the church, I want to sort of present the arguments that each side thought in, in answer to this question as well. Of course, beginning with Emperor Leo, those who opposed icons firmly believed that icons uh, were idols. They, they were represented idols. To use them in any way was uh, idolatry. Uh, those in favor of icons, of course, argued that uh, semantics here, I think is a word, the second commandment specifically forbade the making of pagan idols and false gods, especially in the form of statues, was their argument. Uh, they th actually said that the Old Testament is full of icons specifically commissioned by God to be used in worship. Uh, such as the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, uh, various cherubim and other images that adorned Solomon's temple, uh, even the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the desert. They saw all of these as examples of icons that were used in worship that were not idolatry. Uh, they didn't worship the icon itself, but... Uh, but Christ, who was in some way represented by the icon, and, and they looked to the bronze serpent as an example of that. That was clearly not Christ, and yet Christ himself said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So it was a picture of Christ. Uh, one of their defenders, Leon, Leontius of Neapolis, who lived in the mid-7th century, uh, said, when I worship the icon of God, I am not worshiping the nature of the wood and the colors, God forbid, but holding to the non-living portrait of Christ, I intend through it to hold and worship Christ himself. 
So that was their, their argument uh, for icons not breaking the second commandment. Next question, does the fact that the Son of God became a man enable us to portray him as a man? We obviously don't know what he looked like. We have a lot of pictures. He's got blonde hair and blue eyes in some of them. Uh, so again, the church, two different approaches here. Those who were against icons said that uh, only Christ is the true image of God. Uh, see the exact imprint of his nature. We find that in scripture. So any icon representing Christ can only capture his human appearance or, or the idea of his appearance since we don't know what it really was but that a picture of him as a human doesn't capture his divine nature, uh, and so it robs Christ of half of his identity. That makes it wrong. Uh, of course, those who loved icons uh, argued that uh, the icon haters were devaluing his humanity by not allowing his human image to be portrayed. They said because Jesus was God in human form, any image of him as a human did not neglect his deity, but was merely acknowledging that God became man. Uh, third question, I should probably watch the clock. Uh, oh, we are going late. All right, <laughs> nobody's here. Third question, <laughs> oh, what, what were the practices of the early church? Um, it's kind of a difficult one to answer because the early church was generally persecuted and didn't have buildings uh, to adorn with icons. Uh, they did uh, address the topic of what we call veneration, or, well, what the Catholics call veneration. Uh, the early church thought the veneration of anyone other than God is idolatry. Um, however, the Eastern church doesn't see their use of icons of saints as veneration specifically, although they also do. <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, once the church got to the fourth century, we had the Emperor Constantine who you know, actually supported Christianity and made it the official religion of the empire, that's when church buildings really began to pop up. Uh, and they were frequently very ornately ordained, uh, such as the uh, Hagia Sophia there in Constantinople, because it was the government trying to show off their support of the church with their great wealth. Uh, so even in the early days, uh, the East and West had different ideas of what was acceptable. Uh, interestingly enough, the East tended to display Christ as a man um, because, as I said, they, they valued that humanity idea, uh, whereas the West thought that having an image of a man when we didn't know what he looked like was idolatry, so they typically represented him symbolically as a lamb or a lion or things like that, uh, which the East thought was bordering on animal worship. So... Each side had a reason why they thought the other was wrong uh, and was more than happy to accuse the other of idolatry. <laughs> um, and the final question I want to look at is, uh, what was best for an uneducated, illiterate person, such as what the majority of believers were in the Middle Ages? Uh, the anti-icon side of the argument claims that such people would be easily led astray by icons, would be confused about how they should be used, and would worship them as idols, uh, misunderstanding the intention of the icon. Possible. Those in favor of icons argued that for people who can't read, icons are like a picture book. 
That's how you convey stories of the Bible or of the saints who have been faithful through church history. So they argued that if you can convey the Bible stories with words, written words, you should be able to tell the same stories with pictures. Yes. Uh, so while all these questions are generally focused on icons of Christ, um, there are, of course, icons not of Christ, but Mary, the apostles, saints. Uh, and unfortunately, both sides of the argument had no problem with uh, the idea of praying to these saints, um, not as representations of Christ, but as I mentioned, as uh, a stepping stone to get closer to Christ. Um, so that was an unfortunate, I would say, wrong doctrine, wrong understanding. Um, it misses the freedom that we have uh, as believers to directly approach the throne of God uh, with our prayers, with our petitions. Uh, we have that freedom because we are in Christ. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, uh, and God loves us more than we will ever understand. So we are, we are very welcome to enter the throne room and talk to God he wants to listen to us. We don't need somebody else closer to him to get his attention. So the iconoclastic controversy primarily involved the Eastern Church. And aside from supporting those who opposed the emperor and being present at the Second Council, uh, the Western Church really didn't participate in this controversy. They generally accept the use of icons, um, though not to the extent that the East does, at least at that time. Uh, in the future, we'll see how the Western Church uses icons and statues uh, and how that sort of evolved through their time uh, to lead to veneration, uh, etc., which led to the East accusing them of idolatry. So, that concludes my lesson. <laughs>